0: Well, good morning, everybody. It is a big day. Um, As Eric just pointed out, uh, this is a day that we've been leaning towards for three years. We didn't know when it would come. And uh, and yet we trust that what Jesus began when he started this whole idea, or or he and the Father did, about how the gospel would be carried out um, in the last 2,000 years, um, the church has been that primary vehicle. And for you guys to wait patiently and uh, expect that God is going to answer. You know that there's, there's never been an unanswered prayer. You've never experienced an unanswered prayer. Uh, there's, there's a yes, there's a no, and no is an answer. You guys nod your head, right? No is an answer. It's not the one we like usually, but a lot of times God says wait, and for three years that's been where we've been at. Uh, ben and Hannah, God had you whether you knew it or not, preparing over these last several years to be here and to, to lead this church in this particular moment. And this is, a, this is an Esther moment. It's a, for such a time as this moment. And uh, like I said, I'm just grateful I get to be in the room with you guys today and that we get to celebrate God's goodness and uh, his faithfulness. So uh, this is a, called an installation service. Anybody ever attended an installation service before? Okay, yeah, a few. Uh, so you're ahead of where I was uh, just three and a half years ago, beginning of 2020, um, became the regional president for Converge Northwest, uh, now serving about 110 churches in five states. And I, had, I don't think I'd ever attended an installation service in my life, and then I found myself leading one uh, in 2020 during the pandemic. And of course, I called my dad, who's been a pastor... Um, 22 years longer than I've been alive, I think, and said, what, what is this thing? And uh, we, we talked it through a little bit, and, uh, but let me just summarize. For those of you who have never been to an installation moment, um, what we're simply doing today is marking a moment. What we're doing is, is, is saying all of those prayers, all of that energy that has been poured in over a number of years now and through very, very tumultuous years at that. That God has answered, and that as you have sought to discern God's will, as Ben and Hannah have been doing the same thing from the other side of the country, that God has brought you together for such a time as this. And I just want to pause for a moment and acknowledge all of the hard work that the deacons have put in, that the the staff has put in, that so many key volunteer leaders have put in. Uh, when, when you sign up to be, for example, a deacon or an elder or something like that, or you say, I'll work on a search team, you sort of assume that means it's going to cost you about an hour a week or an hour every, or two hours every two weeks or something like that. The last few years haven't allowed for that. And so search teams and deacons, it's become a part-time job. And we just want to acknowledge what God has done through you. Thank you, all of you. Deacons, would you stand? Search team, stand all right yeah search team deacon stand there you go good job thank you uh in the old testament when god wanted israel his people who he was working with over the centuries that are recorded in the old testament when god wanted israel to remember a moment what did he do He'd tell him to go play with rocks. Over and over again, you find in the Old Testament there's a key moment where God shows up, a victory is won, where a, a new direction is being um, instituted by God. And what he would we would tell him over and over again is uh, build build me a rock pile, build me a rock pile which seems a little bit weird. I mean, these days you see rock piles all over the place. You go to the ocean, you go to the river, you go through some people's yards and they've got stacks of rocks. You guys have seen that? National Forest Service has actually said, please stop doing that. That's not the way the glaciers left them. But those rock piles were, were done on purpose by God, not because a rock pile needed to be there, but because he knew that his people would very quickly forget. Just like that, we forget. We forget what God has done. We forget where he's taken us. We forget the urgent prayers, the desperate prayers. And, and we start thinking, I guess, I guess we just figured it out. I guess we just needed to work harder. I guess we just needed that right person. And God simply wanted his people to remember, I did something here. And this pile of rocks is just a, a memory marker. It's a, it's a time to pause. And in fact, God would usually say, I, I want you to build this pile of rocks so that Future generations will know. What he was setting up are pinky moments. We've got seven grandkids under the age of five, and so I get a lot of pinky moments. I had one last night. I was in Phoenix uh, with with Pastor Kevin, our strengthening director, and uh, we had a series of meetings uh, for five days down in Phoenix area. And when I got home Friday and Saturday, there was a parade of grandkids coming through. They all live close by, and they wanted to see Papa. Last night, I was out walking around uh, in, our, in our field, and it was a pinky moment. Two-and-a-half-year-old Emmy Joy grabbed my pinky, and we just kind of walked around the property, and she talked about where the flowers used to be and where the leaves now have fallen. And... A rock pile is creating pinky moments for next generations. Moments where, when the child would say, Papa, what, what's this pile of rocks? And that's when dad or mom or papa or nana can say, oh, let me tell you what God did. Let me tell you about God's faithfulness. And I, I'm, I'm caught up a little bit in this moment because this has been a long time. And there have been some really hard things in the last three years, and yet God reigns and he is faithful. Amen? Uh, in, installation uh, it 's not like installing a light bulb it 's not like installing a shower curtain. an installation is is marking the moment, building that rock pile and the moment matters as we celebrate what God has done as we press forward with new vision as Ben leads in the coming months and years. I want to take you to Nehemiah for a few minutes this morning. Open your bibles old testament nehemiah i 'm going to take you to chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 1. In Nehemiah, we find the story um, of God's faithfulness to his people when the wheels had come off. Israel had, had reaped the whirlwind. God had said very, very clearly, if you follow me, if you obey me, then you will be blessed, and I will be your God, and you will thrive here in the promised land. But, he said, if you choose to go your own way, if you choose to worship other gods and follow other gods, then I'm going to judge. And for generations, you're going to suffer. And that happened. Nehemiah's world is a mess. He's in exile with God's people, the Jews in Babylon. Under Persian King Artaxerxes, the nation of Israel— Nehemiah's own people have suffered division. They've suffered loss. They've been grieving. There's been incredible conflict. Jerusalem lies in ruins. The temple has been destroyed. Everything that they know and love seems to have been lost. It's in the rear view. The people have been scattered, some in captivity, some still living in the ruins of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah gets a report. This is where we pick it up, Nehemiah chapter 1. Verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Hanani, and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. So some people had come back from the old country. They traveled across the desert. They were now with Nehemiah in Persia. And the report isn't good. Those that, or they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble. They're in disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Jerusalem, the temple are in ruins. Everything that they know and love seems to have been lost. But rather than simply grieve over this report, rather than than feel disheartened and lose heart and give up, Nehemiah responds. Let me read verse 4 again. When I heard these things, Nehemiah says, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. When life is a mess, God is our only hope. Amen? He goes on. I want to jump with you, skip the rest of chapter 1, which is uh, Nehemiah, after he's had this heavy heart moment, he's gone before God, he's grieved, he's wept, he's prayed, he's fasted, then he goes and approaches the king, King Artaxerxes, and he explains the issue. And the king, surprisingly, by God's grace, says, I want you to go back. Go back. Now Nehemiah has to come to his own countrymen who have become settled in a foreign land. They become comfortable with what would have been foreign to them. And he knows that he has to win them over as well with the vision of rebuilding. Verse 17 of chapter 2, Nehemiah carries on, and this is what he says. Then I said to them his own people. You see the trouble that we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we'll no longer be in disgrace. And I told them also about the gracious hand of my God on me, and what the king had just said to me. And they replied, let us start building. Let us start rebuilding. And so they began This good work. I want to read that verse again. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me, and they replied, Let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. What Nehemiah is describing is a moment of grace and courage in the face of despair, it's a spark of life amidst destruction and death. What he's describing is a somebody better do something sort of a moment. Amen. And it occurs to me that we're in one of those moments again today, aren't we? Across the world. It's a mess. If I would be just deep level honest, I hesitated to get on a plane last week because I thought. With the mess that our world is in right now, what if something happens and I'm 1,300 miles from home? That's a long walk. The world's a mess. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for peace in Ukraine. Pray for peace in Africa. All around the world, there are wars and rumors of war. And I don't know how much longer Jesus will still leave us waiting before he returns. But it could be in our lifetime. It could be this week. It could be before I get to see my grandkids grow and get married. The world is a mess. We're in one of those somebody better do something sorts of moments. In the United States, we're not a whole lot better. The economy and politics and racial distinctions and sexual confusion Our educational process. I mean, uh, you name the area. Things are not good. It is a somebody better do something sort of a moment. And even here in this church, in this place, Cedar Home, you you have been faithfully serving God here since 1890. Now, I'm not real good at math, but that feels like about 133 years. It's over 13 decades. God's faithfulness here. Now, what's going on here at Cedar Home is not the walls of Jerusalem being torn down and the temple burned. It's not that. But it's been three years of leading together and having to lean hard on each other in God's grace in our relationships. The fact that this room is full, despite all that has happened, is an amazing work of God. And yet, and yet, it is a, this is a somebody better do something kind of a moment here, here as a church, because God's heart for the people of Skagit and Island County is that every man, woman, and child would come to him that everyone would have the opportunity to hear of Jesus and his love and his grace and his forgiveness. It is a somebody-better-do-something sort of moment, and there needs to be a rekindled urgency that if indeed the world is really going to hell, and I believe it is, that we need to act like that. We need to talk about the hope that lies within us. We need to try new things to reach the next generation while being faithful to the never changing truth of God's Word. It's a somebody-better-do-something sort of moment. And here's Nehemiah's choice, I want to take you very quickly through a few things. Nehemiah's choice, he, he could have decided when he heard the bad news of Jerusalem to just say, not my problem, I'm in captivity, what am I supposed to do about that? Hundreds and hundreds of miles away. But he doesn't hide it. He doesn't try to put a PR spin on it. It's not good. And he says, we simply need to fully acknowledge reality as it is on the ground. Then he moves on, and and this next thing he says is is not only does he face it head on, but his first response when, when he sees that the world is not as it should be, he says, I don't have the answers, but I know who does. And so, I'm, I'm going to focus my heart, I'm going to focus my mind, I'm going to focus my body on seeking God's solution, seeking his provision. Did he mourn? Yeah. He grieved. But then he repented He said, God, whatever it is in me that has contributed to the mess of my world, whatever comfort that I found living in a foreign place where I never should be comfortable, God, I repent. And he, In his repentance, his fasting, his prayer, he seeks the face of God. And then, after seeking God, after his prayer, after his fasting, after his mourning, in chapter 2, we see the turnaround, and he goes from facing reality head-on to going to God with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, and then he says, all right, all right, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We are not going to complain. We're not just going to watch the news and then whine about it. We're going to seek God's face, and then we're going to get moving. He says, let us start rebuilding. And I love that simple phrase, and so they began this good work. That's the moment you're in, Cedar Holm. Let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. So did they in Nehemiah's time, and so will we. In 2023, I want to take us very quickly to the New Testament. I meet with a lot of pastors and elder boards. Most are hopeful. Some are beaten up. Some are in conflict. And culture, you know this, culture is not where it used to be. It's not where it was when I planted a church in Monroe, Washington in 1997. It's not where this church was, Cedar Home, in 1890. It's not where it was four years ago. But despite the circumstances, we do not lose heart. Amen? Yes. We don't lose heart. Let me just remind you of what we're about together as a movement within Converge Northwest. Converge Northwest exists for very simple reasons. We want to help people meet, know, and follow Jesus by starting churches and by strengthening the churches that already exist. And we do that towards the aim of making disciples. Who make disciples. This is who we are. And we do what the church has always done when everything falls apart. We go back to our mission. And so the jump from Nehemiah and his somebody better do something moment to we gotta move ahead by the Spirit of God calls us to be reminded of the purpose of the church. Jesus gave that to us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And Jesus, post-resurrection, in this moment, provides our priority as his followers. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is gathered with some of his disciples, post-resurrection, and he says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what he gives us there are concentric circles, ripples, like if you throw a rock into a pond, where it hits, the ripples begin to go outwards. And what he says is simply this, you're going to carry out these marching orders, the purpose for the church to exist. What I'm leaving you to do as Jesus returns to heaven, he says, you are to be my witnesses. In Matthew 28, he actually says, as the power of the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses. And then he says, and these are concentric circles, in Jerusalem, that's where you live. Cedar home, that's Stanwood. And then he goes on, in Jerusalem and in all Judea. Judea would be the next town over that is somewhat like you, Mount Vernon. Maybe even all the way down to Everett. And then he says, not only in your Jerusalem will you be faithful, but in your Judea and your Samaria, which would be areas that are pretty close to you, but distinct from you culturally. And then he also says to the ends of the earth, and notice the conjunctions there. He doesn't say then, you'll be my witness in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then in Samaria, because that would mean it's some kind of a punch list. And those of us who are list makers would say, well, I can't care about anything outside of my Jerusalem until we've reached our Jerusalem completely. And guess what? You'll never get there. Not this side of heaven. And so what Jesus is saying is our marching orders is to be on mission here, near, and far at the same time. That even as we reach our region, as you support perhaps a pregnancy resource center in a town nearby as you seek to feed the homeless, as you seek to reach out to your neighbors and their children here in this area, you still care about those who are not like you and not too far away, and you care about those who live an ocean or a plane ride away. We're on mission here, near, and far together. And the disciples heard this message, and they said, this is awesome. And then the Holy Spirit, speaking of celebration moments, rock pile moments. The Holy Spirit has a rock pile moment, and he descends on the believers. They become indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And everybody says, this is incredible. And they're growing like crazy. They're baptizing hundreds and thousands at a time. And then the wheels come off. Everybody's saying, hey, this works. Our purpose works. The message of Jesus works. The gospel is real. It changes lives. In fact, Jesus changes everything. And then... Everything falls apart. There's persecution of those who call on the name of Jesus. There's a scattering, a diaspora. Stephen is murdered. Saul is on a Christian killing rampage. The believers scattered. But despite the chaos, those early Jesus followers stayed on mission. They went back over and over. Every time they started to question, man, the circumstances are bad. Maybe we need to be focused on something else. (laughs) And they stayed on mission. How do we know that? Because they passed the gospel of Jesus Christ on to the next generation. And then they passed the baton to the next generation. And then they passed the baton to the next generation. And now we're sitting here in Stanwood, Washington, Cedar Home Church. And our job is to pass that on as well. To continue on mission. Somebody better do something. Something. Over these last few years, change has been our constant companion. There's been fear at times. There's been disillusionment and uncertainty. And I wish I could tell you the state of the world is just going to get better. But we know that it won't. In fact, it very well might get worse in the short term. And as a church, you've weathered all of this without a lead pastor. Thank God. Thank God. Thanks again to the leaders and the men and women among you here at Cedar Home who have carried the load of shepherding this church and staying on mission. And we shouldn't be surprised, right? We shouldn't be surprised because the church of Jesus Christ has always been at her best when things look like they're at their worst. It's been the way for God's people forever, all the way back to Nehemiah. It's a somebody... Better do something, sort of moment. And in my opinion, there is no better time to be alive. There's no better time to be a follower of Jesus. There's no a better time to be on mission than in this moment and in this place. And I want you to consider that not only has God called Ben and Hannah and their kids for such a time as this. I also believe that God has you in this room, you connected to this church, because you are a vital part. Of what God has in mind for living on mission here, near and far, here at Cedar Home. In my opinion, it's the best time to live for Jesus, the best time, the best place to make disciples. And this is what we're about at Converge Northwest. We want to see disciples made here, near and far. I believe with all my heart that the best days of Cedar Home are not in the rearview mirror. They aren't 70 years ago. They aren't 40 years ago. They're not some other pastor who did some other things three generations back. We celebrate all that God has done, but we lean forward, anticipating by faith that the best is yet to come. Somebody better do something. Can you say it with me? Somebody better do something something would you pray with me heavenly father thank you for bringing us to this moment thank you for partnering ben and hannah and their family with cedar home and lord i pray that in the months and the years ahead not only would you bring unity and a sense of purpose united in faith intent on one purpose But Lord, I pray that there would be baptisms and conversions, new disciples made, new leaders sent out, new churches planted in the season that's ahead. We ask for your blessing. We thank you for your goodness. And may we each answer the call to be on mission with you. In Jesus' name, amen.